Aloha and welcome to the Woman on Fire podcast. I am Daniela. I am here and with I'm Jamie. Jamie. <laughs> exactly. And we have a very special guest here with us today, Dr. Stuart Fishbein. Welcome, Dr. Sue. Hi, Daniela. Hi, Jamie. Hey. Hi. Thanks for joining <laughs> us today. I wish I was with you. I'm actually in Los Angeles, but yeah. Nice yes. I, I know. We'll have a reunion all in due time. That would be great. Um, but for now, it's nice to see you virtually. And well, would you please introduce yourself? Let our listeners know who you are and what you're about. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a uh, practicing obstetrician in Los Angeles, but I'm rather unique. I do home birthing, which I've been doing for the last 11 years after 28 years of working in the hospital. So I'm in my 40, almost my 40th year of, uh, since I started my residency. Uh, I'm the author of the book, Fearless Pregnancy. I've published three papers. Uh, I teach breach delivery, um, the reteach breach program, although we've been sort of dormant for the past year, like everybody else. And uh, I'm specialized in breach and twin deliveries, although I do normal births as well. Uh, but there are so few choices for women here in Southern California and most places in the country or in the world for that matter, for vaginal breach delivery of, excuse me, vaginal delivery of breaches, or even twins. Most twins are being delivered by cesarean section now. That's not evidence-based, it's not supported. It's not uh, even ACOG supports properly selected breach and twin delivery should be done vaginally. Uh, unfortunately, I'm not teaching the skills. My passion is to reteach the breach and try to bring back the skills that make my profession unique. Um, an obstetrician who only does cesarean sections to me is not really an obstetrician. And I'll just leave it that as my usual controversial self, I'll just leave it with that. And you can find me at Birthing Instincts if people wanna get to know me better um, on Instagram or birthinginstincts.com is my website. And you also have your own great podcast that you've been doing for many, many years and you just rebranded it. It is now, it used to be Dr. Stu's podcast and now it is Birthing Instincts, correct? That's correct. Birthing Instincts yeah. podcast with Bliss, my, my Bliss. pal Bliss, um, who has been with me now probably more than just about any of my other co-hosts over the years. But I've been doing this since 2013, since podcasting wasn't really that big a thing. So yeah, it's been fun. And, and uh, it's fun for me to go back and actually listen to some of the old podcasts. And you know, my evolution, even in, in the last eight years, has been interesting. But even the topics and the things have changed. Um, but my passion has not. So I'm happy to be here with you guys today. Oh, yeah. Yes. A truth yeah. seeker like ourselves. <laughs> exactly yeah well we invited you here and I know you could talk about so many things for so many hours um and it was hard to pinpoint like what do we focus on and I think we're just going to kind of figure it out organically here together of what's relevant in the moment um but yeah you're you're kind of like a very unique creature a unicorn of sorts a the Sasquatch, it's not a common creature, right? The OB that attends births at home that that thinks differently than most other people. You're just great for some uh, Even reasons. when I was in the hospital, I thought differently than most of my colleagues. And that part of the reason that I ended up not in the hospital anymore mm -hmm. uh, was because hospitals like to have things done on an algorithmic formula and everything is done the same way. And, and that's not how you guys in the midwifery model or I who have learned from you uh, tend to want to care for our individual clients. We want to 
give them um, information and let them have autonomy and decision making and not skew our counseling and not funnel them down a path that the hospital or the insurance company or me as a physician want them to take. Um, but we're sort of stuck in that in that world. So uh, it's much easier and it's been the best thing that's happened to me professionally was to uh, have parting ways with the hospitals because I'm free now to do the things that I'm trained to do. Um, and you, and you guys know that. I mean, Daniela, you, you both spent time with me, but Daniela spent quite a bit of time with me. And Jamie, you were here for a couple of weeks, I think, right? Yep, I sure yeah. was. Uh, yep, not not enough time. Looking forward to more in the yeah. future. But yes, mm -hmm. so grateful for the time that, I mean, you were so welcoming. Um, mm -hmm. And it's it was, it's such a gift. I mean, really, it's just spending well, I would time. Love being to teach you. I would love to have medical students uh, or residents um, be able to speak to them, but that's sort of not, likely to happen. Um, the people that run academic medicine are not quite ready for somebody like me. So um, I find that the, the, uh, the skill keepers and the, bear, the, the torch bearers of our profession are really midwives. Um, OBs are really not learning uh, the skills that make us, you know, able to care and give women the options and choices they deserve. And uh, yeah, it makes me angry sometimes when I think about what's going on in academia and that these are the standard bearers of my profession and they're the ones setting the standard and yet they're not teaching. And right. yet they're the ones that sit in judgment of you and me and everybody else who you know, wants to practice uh, the way we were you know, maybe trained a long time ago or the way you guys are still trained now. Yeah. And do you find, I, I know that here too, there's a lot of peer pressure to conform when you're in those models of care as well in the, in the hospital model of care. We've had a few obstetricians over the years who've been kind of open to supporting transports and things like that. And then they kind of get scared out of it. Yeah. They're, they're, they're <laughs> by their partners will say they won't cover them anymore or their call group or by the hospital itself. Um, yeah, it's the old Japanese proverb, the nail that stands out, what do you do with it? You pound it back in again. And so um, people who want to support you guys are, you know, they, they get beaten up on. And it's not just their partners, it's also the financial model of the of, of, uh, medicine, yes. where you, know, you don't get paid much, so you have to do volume. And when you do volume, you can't possibly give the same kind of care. And then there's the medical legal aspects, and then there's the fear aspect, which is a huge thing. Yeah, just um, not understanding. People are taught in the hospital model, they're taught in a fear-based world where, you know, pregnancy is an illness that needs to be treated. And without modern medicine, uh, the species itself would become extinct because women are incapable. I mean, it gets, it's so funny when I, I mean, it's an old, old skit, and you may have seen it. It's the Monty Python um, delivery mm -hmm. And, oh yeah. And, you know, they, this was done 25 years ago or more when they when they said it, but it it was so true then, and it's really true now. When John Cleese looks at the woman, the woman says, "Doctor, I think the baby's coming. What do I do?" And John Cleese says, "Nothing, dear. You're not qualified." Yeah, that's my favorite <laughs> line in that too. Right. I've actually written a whole blog to like break down that video, but I've been hesitant to post it because I don't want to come across like demonizing the hospital or medical or doctor world too much um but it's true if you haven't seen this video it's worth checking out it you know sit, 
it's very satirical, but it points out some truths that right are still prevalent today, even though well, that was it's a, a long it's, time it's ago. So, it's so satirical that I don't think you could write something that people would actually. Anybody who took your commentary on that video as some as a critique of the of the medical world, they've got other problems that that <laughs> are not <laughs> that we're not going to resolve. <laughs> we're not going to resolve exactly. exactly. <laughs> Maybe I'll post it after all then. Yeah. <laughs> so. So yeah, it, it's all very messy and confusing for people, and um, you know, hopefully, here too. <laughs> truly, truly, um, and I hope, Doctor Sue, you know, one of the reasons I love you—you're amazing in many ways. But one of the things is like you're amazing with numbers, not just being able to like just memorize statistics, which you do very well, but also like making sense of them and putting them into perspective for people. Right when I was up there and just watching you. Um, describe to people, well, what are the risks and breaking it down like it was amazing, you know? So I was hoping we could kind of bring some of that here to the podcast for folks listening, kind of like taking them into Dr. Sue's office in some way. Um, and there's one thing in particular that's really on my mind and it's this 42 week cutoff, right? Mm -hmm. That people have to figure out how to navigate. And there's a lot to say about that. And um, but ultimately, what I hope we can get to is just understanding how that risk is even assessed. Um, so just in short, 42-week cutoff that, if you're not familiar with it, is kind of like the post-term uh, limit where inductions want to be made. They don't want you to see, um, want you to get the 42 weeks in pregnancy, right? It's concerning. And one of the main concerns tends to be stillbirth. So that's one I'd really like um, for you to please address for folks and what are yeah. the risks? How do they even figure out those risks? Um, what does it mean? <laughs> yeah, well, and especially because now they don't even wait till 42 weeks. They it's want 41. to be out by 42 weeks. Right, right. So they're gonna induce you at 41 and four. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, that was gonna be my first point is that, is that there are, there are major uh, health institutions here in Southern California that don't allow, I love the word allow, we always love the word Oh allow. yeah, it's great. They don't allow women to go past 41 weeks. And they use skewed informed consent or even coercion. You know, you don't want a dead baby, do you? That sort of, that uh -huh. sort of thing to get people to do what they want to do. And ACOG has a statement, the American College of OBGYN has a statement that the use of coercion is never acceptable. And I wrote a blog once called "Subtle Coercion Is Still Coercion." <laughs> mm. Okay, and so when they when they make hints or they make things or they use fear or they skew their counseling to get you to do something that is a form of coercion. Um, and then not only to say that forty one weeks was bad, but now you know a year or two ago they came out with the Arrive trial, which was you may have heard of that, which is where they talked about inducing everyone at thirty nine weeks. Nine weeks, yes. Uh, right. I is even it, heard an obstetrician here say that 38 weeks is when the babies fare the best. Well, that's not exactly true. All right. That, <laughs> right, right. I was a little surprised by that comment. Right. That's not, that's not true. That depends on the short and long-term uh, effects and also the effects of induction and the um, long-term effects of induction versus and also the short-term effects of induction. So, I mean, I could go off and monologue here. So interrupt me if I start monologuing like some villain in some, in some evil movie where I'm, I'm just monologuing to the hero while I have him tied up in a chair. Ready to get, ready to get no, ready. we're ready for it. We're ready for your monologue. <laughs> That's why we invited you. Yeah, take it away. Okay, so 
the stillbirth rate does rise from about 36 weeks on, all right? But that's irrelevant because people need to know not that it rises, but what is the actual risk, all right? And before I even get there, when, when I, I wanna say a basic tenant that I've come up with over the last year or two, I should have come up with it a long time ago, but it's one of those basic tenants in science and it really popped up to me more with the, um, with the, with the mandates about the coronavirus. Whenever, you, whenever a, a expert or an epidemiologist or a scientist or a doctor or anybody else tells you something that actually ends in a perfectly rounded number, they're lying, all right? Just remember that. So the whole idea of 42 weeks is a lie because why isn't it 41 weeks, six days and four hours? Why isn't it 42, day, 42 weeks, three days and, you know, I mean, whatever. So they, they come up with these round numbers and the, it was made very clear to me when we got to the six feet apart business and the social mm. distancing, which is a euphemism actually for anti-social distancing because you don't socially distance. That's uh, it's physical it's an oxy, distancing. It's an <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, but when they talk about six feet or they talk about 24 hours of ruptured membranes or age 35, anytime you have an even number like that, where it's a perfect number, you know, they're lying. Okay. Because nature doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. Um, now getting back to that, you need to know actual risk and not relative risk. Something may be twice or three times riskier than something else. But if you don't know what the denominator is, it doesn't mean anything to you. The analogy I use here in California when I'm speaking to clients, and Danielle, you probably heard me say this, is that if something happened in California last year one time, the incidence would be one in 40 million, okay? Because there's 40 million people in California. So say this year it happened 10 times. Now you could say, well, the relative risk of this pro problem happening is now tenfold. There's been a tenfold increase in this risk, but the actual risk is still one in 4 million, all right? so. You need to tell people because one in 40 million and one in 4 million is the same number. It's essentially zero, all right? So when they talk about the risk of stillbirth rising, it does, it's true, but you need to ask the doctor or whoever's telling you this information, what is the actual risk? And they will probably tell you that most likely they won't know because they may have known at some time in their career and they may have forgotten, but I'm sure they're not keeping up to date now because we tend to be creatures of habit, we tend to you know, say the same thing that we've been saying all along because it's worked for us. It's that famous Thomas Paine quote, the long habit of not thinking something wrong gives it the superficial appearance of being right. And so we tell somebody that's risky to go to 40, 41 weeks or 42 weeks, but how risky is it doctor? Oh, it's risky. It's really risky. Well, how risky is it? Well, it's just really dangerous and they don't know, all right? But the actual risk at 42 weeks of a stillbirth is still less than 1%, okay? But you wouldn't know that by talking to most people in medicine. Now, 1% for some people might seem very risky. And for those people, a choice of being induced or having a scheduled C-section or something, that's perfectly fine as long as they've been, made, been informed of the information and then been able to make a decision that best suits their desire. But to other people, one in, you know, um, a one in 200 or half of 1% is not a reason to be induced. And those people should be honored as well. And another basic tenet of medical ethics, which many of my colleagues have forgotten is that 
given the same information, it's not reasonable to expect two people to come to the same conclusion. And yet in my, in my profession, we work, they, they work on an algorithmic method. Everyone has to follow this. Everyone has to dilate at a certain rate. Everyone has to um, have an IV. Everyone can't eat in labor. Everyone, you know, this is how we do things. And so we don't individualize our care because the model doesn't allow it because between volume and shift medicine and all that other stuff, it's just, it's just easier for administrators and, and bureaucrats and other things to keep everybody who runs a hospital to run on the same issue or the same plane because that way we think we're protecting ourselves from liability, but we're not getting good outcomes. Clearly we're not getting good outcomes. We've seen, you know, um, again, I'm not, and I don't want to be hyperbolic against the hospital model because the hospital is useful for about 15% of pregnant women. The other 85% shouldn't even be close to a hospital because they don't need it. All right. But when you need it, it's great. And when, so if you're preterm labor, you're preeclamptic, you've got diabetes that's way out of control, uh, your baby's growth restricted, those are things, but most women don't have that. And for them to end up being in a hospital model where they're being induced, um, for lowish fluid or biggish baby or, or 41 weeks. Yeah. Or your placenta is <laughs> looking old on ultrasound, whatever that means. All right. People talk about a grade three placenta, grade three placentas are normal from about 34 to 35 weeks on. All right. It's in the, it's in the realm of normal, but how many people know that? Mm-hmm. And these, this information is very readily available. Anybody can look it up, but Doctors well, say what that, they want. They they say what they want to get people to do what they feel is is best for them. And part of that is maybe the peer pressure, or or as you said, even looking at that's the relative risk, but then looking at the individual, right? And and so, what is your actual risk? The person sitting across the table in front of me. And, and is it my is it my decision? Either way. <laughs> yeah, is it my decision to if I give you risks and then you choose to do something that I wouldn't do, I have an ethical obligation to, to support that decision. Now, support could look like, you know, I'm not comfortable with that. I think you need to find another practitioner, which of course at 41 weeks is very difficult for anybody to do. Or it could be saying, well, I'm not comfortable with that or saying it to yourself, but saying, okay, I support you. And just documenting in the chart that this is, I've recommended this, the patient has chosen this. We've had a long discussion about this. You could even have the patient sign that note and then you can honor the patient's request, but that's sort of not how it's done because, because the, the model doesn't support that. There isn't time in the, in the way the office practice of OBGYN is in most of the country, all right? You don't have the time to spend like midwives do. They, they don't, they, prenatal visits are what? Six minutes long, maybe eight in the, in the medical model. You guys have what? 45 minute to 60 minute visits. Right? <laughs> Sometimes two you hours. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you do that, but you, you, you know, you can't make a living with doing that, but your overhead is much less and nobody right. goes into midwifery to get rich. So um, mm-hmm. it's a calling for midwives and for physicians, yeah. you know, there, there's a whole mixed bag of why they choose to become obstetricians. I think they're naive when they first get into it because it's cool when you're a medical student and you do a rotation in OB and and you get to deliver babies and it's really cool, but you can, you can actually see there's an evolution to how doctors think about it because at that age, you don't think about on-call, liability, all that other stuff. You think about the cool stuff. 
But as you go through residency program, you can see people that went into OB because they love delivering babies, but end up finishing their residence choosing to go into GYN oncology. Mm. So talk about the opposite end of the spectrum. And yet that's happens to a significant number of people. Almost nobody finishes their residency anymore in OB and goes out and works. Almost everybody's doing fellowships now. Oh, specializing. So you're ending up with a lot of people who are doing high risk stuff and not a lot of people who are doing generalist OB, right? Well, and then all of that just gets transferred to the clients who maybe are low risk, but they have these people who are specialized in high risk, right? And so they look through it at that lens. Yeah, and they're the ones that are teaching the next generation of OBs to, to practice too. So, you, you know, midwives should be teaching uh, residents how to take care of women in labor, but they're being taught by maternal fetal medicine specialists. And so naturally you're gonna, you're gonna learn what you know. Right. And what, what you know there is that, uh, you know, pregnancy is a problem, pregnancy is an illness, pregnancy needs to be treated. Right. And, um, and then you end up with all this intervention and this meddling and you end up with C-section rates going from 5% 50 years ago to over 30% now. With no, no change in the rate of cerebral palsy, right. um, less patient satisfaction, maternal mortality has probably risen slightly, neonatal mortality, if anything, has plateaued or risen, um, and yet we have a C-section rate that's 500% increased. And we have, we have long-term issues, too, with gut floras and all kinds of things well that's a whole nother that's a whole nother that's a whole, right. <laughs> right the full <laughs> picture though but yeah out of all the go ahead i'm sorry daniel well in the industrial right i'm doing quotations with my finger in the industrial world all those countries the u.s spends the most amount of money on maternity care yet we have one of the poorest outcomes um for moms and babies right so it's not about just throwing money at an issue and more technology and the most sophisticated beeping machine right but that's no, but, but, often but, what people find an illusion of safety and is like oh well there's more machines more monitoring more technology more machines that go beep yeah. is that what yeah that's yeah right that's a monty <laughs> python <laughs> reference go watch the video if you haven't seriously <laughs> get the machine that goes bing <laughs> yeah so dr stew the dead baby card that gets used a lot and obviously nobody wants that to happen right so naturally we're trying to do things that avoid that scenario totally logical rational makes so much sense um, but when that gets thrown in people's faces, especially in the middle of labor, like you said, that's coercion, unacceptable, um, but it happens. Um, so I'm going to like wheel it back to the 42 week thing, because <laughs> I really want people to be able to figure this out, because if they're telling you your baby has this very high chance of dying, like, obviously you're like, well, that must not be a good idea. Right. But like you said, it's actually a low number and, um, you know five times a very low number is still a very low number. Um, but what I'm hoping you can kind of break down for people even more is how they even calculate those risks, right? So for a while, they primarily did it um, stillbirths per 1,000 births um, at any gestation. And then they started moving more towards stillbirths per ongoing pregnancies. And when they did it the first way, that first method of per thousand pregnancies, they didn't find too much of an increased risk. But then when they did it the other way per ongoing pregnancies, all of a sudden they realized, oh, stillbirth rate goes up a lot. So 
I'm like, well, is that second method actually a better way of reflecting the risk or not? I don't know. What do you think? Um, I, I, I'm not real familiar with what the, with your second uh, model of doing that. I mean, what do they mean by ongoing pregnancies? I mean, clearly the longer you're pregnant, the more likely you are to have an adverse event. That's, Bingo. It's like, duh. <laughs> right. Exactly. If you, if you that, compare babies at 38 weeks who deliver versus babies who go to 41 weeks, you've got three weeks in, in utero where you can have problems that can occur that you wouldn't have had if you took that baby out at 38 weeks. So, you know, it's very hard to compare those numbers. What you have to look at also though, is if you are inducing people at 39 weeks or 41 weeks or anything in between because you don't want them to go overdue because you think there's a problem. And the induction itself leads to problems potentially. Now, there are some, the RIVE trial did not find any difference in cesarean section rates. As a matter of fact, they thought it was lower, which is different from any other trial. And you can, and maybe another time we can talk about the flaws in the ARRIVE trial and how they looked at their data and what they did. But they never, the, the object of medicine and, I, and I, of obstetrics, and I've said this many times before, the way I'm taught, the way obstetricians were taught is that the end result is a baby, a live baby in the bassinet. How it gets there isn't a big deal because the medical model doesn't look at mother baby as a unit as the midwifery model does. We, our job is to get the baby out of the mother in one piece and it becomes the issues of the pediatric department and is no longer our responsibility. So if that baby comes out, we induce it and she ends up with not tolerating labor and she ends up with a C-section and that baby's fine, we've done our job, but have we? Because not only have we put that baby at long-term risk for other things that we've talked about before, like childhood asthma and, and ADHD and adult onset diabetes and all the other, those sorts of things, but we don't give a hoot about the mother's psychiatric well-being and the experience that she's had and how she feels about her body and all that stuff that goes on. And two, one of the questions that I often ask mothers when they come in to see me for a VBAC consult, the VBAC is of course the vaginal birth after cesarean, is when they find out what well, they had a cesarean for breach, okay, because they were breached, they never gave them an option, they did a scheduled C-section. And I said, did your doctor, by the way, before he told you that you needed a C-section, did he ever ask you this question? Did he ever ask you how many more children you want? And the answer to the question is always no. Because again, the, op the object of that physician is to get that baby out healthy. What happens downstream is not the doctor's problem, okay? And we know that if you have a C-section for your first baby, that any advantage you might have gotten by having a C-section specifically for breach, you lose because if the woman wants a second baby, now she's dealing with a scarred uterus and she has to deal with the, the risks of a ruptured uterus, which are small, and the risks of placenta accreta or procreta, which are small, but they're elevated to the point where if you look at 10,000 women, you're gonna find that all the babies you save by sectioning all these women you now lose in the subsequent pregnancy. So if you don't ask that question, and the idea is that the key is to try to prevent the first cesarean, all right? And by inducing people against specifically an unfavorable cervix, I don't care what some new studies have said, experience from anybody who does this regularly or has been doing it for a really long time will tell you that success rates are, are poor 
the women will often end up, uh, you know, they'll start with Cytotec or a Foley balloon, and then they'll go to Pitocin, and then the contractions will be too strong, and then they'll get an epidural. And I have this whole talk about how epidurals separate the mother from the baby. And then we end up seeing this cascade of interventions that leads to the baby's heart rate rising and some D cells and the baby not tolerating labor. And then they do a C-section urgently. They call it emergency, but it's not because it takes 45 minutes for you to get into the operating room. But the woman goes home from the hospital thinking she had an emergency C-section, which of course she didn't because emergency C-section would take minutes to get you back to not a long time. And then you end up with a C-section and they think, thank God that you were in a hospital because what would have happened if you had been doing this at home and this had happened? And never occurs to them that, as you know, as mid practicing midwives, that without meddling with mother nature, you rarely, rarely see the, the rapid deterioration of fetal status that you can see in the hospital. And again, you know, my point is not to bash hospitals, but my point, I'm using this for emphasis, is that in newborn intensive care units in hospitals have lots of babies in them that are term, that their mothers walked into the hospital with a healthy baby inside of them. And somehow they end up in the NICU, okay? And it's not because 1% of women are having their babies at home. I just wanna emphasize that, that the problems with obstetrics in America are not because 1% of women are having their babies home. Yet if you, well, I mean, there's certain people in my profession who have this thing against home birthing and against midwifery. And if you talk to them, it's like, don't look at all our bad statistics. Just look at those awful home birthing people and all the problems they're having over there. And that's not the case. I mean, we're going to have bad outcomes at home and you're going to have bad outcomes in the hospital. And the question is not whether you're going to have a bad outcome or not. The question is, you know, are you doing the best that you can? Are you properly selecting your patients? Are your patients having satisfaction with their, with their birth? Do they feel good about themselves? Do they feel like they participated in the decision-making process? As my friend Brad Boots Taylor likes to say, you know, and he wrote a book called Shared Decision-Making. And, um, you know, some people are offended by the term shared decision-making, like it's not the doctor's decision at all, but it, but it is a shared decision-making process. And again, ultimately the, the arbiter of the decision has to be the woman and her family, but, you know, the process is a shared process. And if you can do that, you, you, you know, the women are more satisfied, the practitioners are more satisfied. I often jokingly say that, you know, I don't like being on call all the time, but I really love my work and I, and I love getting the relationships with the patients and, the, and their families and, and seeing them, you know, down the road. And I would tell you that I don't know, I know a lot of OBs in my community and my old partners and all that stuff. And not a lot of them are happy with their profession. They're not thrilled to be going to the hospital at night and being on call, having to go in, even though they only go in for the very end, they still grumble, okay? Right. Because it's not satisfying. It's really not satisfying. And when, the, and when the shift mentality, when you end up with doctors in a call rotation or a hospitalist, what they call a laborist, you end up taking care of people you've never met before. You have no relationship with them. You go in, you catch the baby. Um, and you never you write, see them again. Write the orders, you never see them again. Right. It's, it's not why most people went into obstetrics in the first place, which was for the, for the longitudinal care. Um, right. If you want like short-term care and stuff like that, you know, you could go into radiology or emergency room medicine or anything like that, where you get short-term care. People that do primary care, like internal medicine, pediatrics, family practice, and OB, 
do it partly because they like the idea of seeing people over all these years and getting to know them and not having to spend, you know, every visit taking a history when you already know the history, it's really nice. You know, how's it going and that sort of thing. So you talk about hockey and, and it's true. Travel. I love repeat clients. They're the best. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, tips, really to know are, them. yeah, multips are the best. So repeat clients and multips are the, are the best. We all love our multips. And you get to see those little like toddlers or if the, you've served them many times over, right? They're bigger children getting to participate in the, it's really great. It's yeah, great. It's, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an evolution to get here. And unfortunately people get stuck in their, in their, in their silo or their cubicle. And it's really hard to get out of that. Um, they get financially embedded into it. You've got overhead, you've got a family, you've got kids in school, or you've got debt. You can't take a risk and, and change your life or change your profession. So um, you end up with this whole thing that, that the idea is it's just easier to schedule a C-section or schedule an induction and deliver them at 7.30 in the morning or four, five o'clock in the afternoon and you know, get to the office or get home. Um, and that's why even in the hospitals, you see peaks of C-sections around those times. Right. Um, that's not how nature works, by the way. Nature does not have- Doesn't a, care about dinner time. <laughs> a double humped curve of when people deliver, right? right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was listening to one of your other podcasts and you were talking about how ACOG is now, um, interested in lobbying the control of CPMs, I think you had mentioned. Do you remember well, bringing well, that, that was, up? Yeah, that was briefly. Um, two, three years ago, ACOG's number one uh, legislative priority was to um, get laws passed in all 50 states regarding uh, regulation of uh, midwives. Yeah, it worked in Hawaii. <laughs> and, and my point of that is very simple. This is that OB should have nothing to do with the decision-making of uh, legislators and midwives because um, mid that implies that OBs are, um, you know, are, are, are sort of the rulers of midwives and that midwives are a lesser subset of obstetricians when they're a separate profession um, and they should be regulating them. They should be dealing with regulation themselves, but the OBs can't get that. And, that, and part of the reason we get these 42-week rules and these no-breach rules and all that stuff is the, the doctors are exacting their pound of flesh for giving midwives some autonomy um, in licensing. So yeah, again, I, 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 it, OBs think they're the keepers of safety, but their view of safety is completely different than a lot of other people's view of safety, okay? There's a lot, safety is a canard. Safety is used as a hammer to get people to do what you want them to do. Look, look what we're dealing with right now. Right. Oh my God, you know. All in the name of safety. Right, get vaccinated, <laughs> be outside with your children, all wearing masks, staying six feet apart, okay? I mean, first of all, none of that stuff is necessary, all right, for anybody who's under 50. Um, it's all crazy, but I don't wanna go off on that tangent either, but people can make up their own mind about that. And there are people on all sides, but I tend to see that the home birth people tend to be more rational and reasonable about all the, their health decisions, not just. Well, I think people that choose to birth at home, right? If that's like the 1% of people in the whole country, generally you're someone that's already not always doing everything in your life in a mainstream way. You're not just doing what you're supposed to and whatever everyone else is doing. You have some sort of 
deep sense of autonomy to some capacity, right? And you'll think for yourself and you come to your own conclusions and you're not afraid to do things differently. So yeah, and I find I find that, uh, you know, when I first started backing midwives, you know, my first impression was like every other doctor's impression, well, people having a home birth or they're hippies or they're, you know, they're just, they're, 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 they're idiots. Or, no, people having home births are actually much more well-informed. They've done much more research. They've really looked into their options and this is what they've come to. So I would say that's the same thing with other health decisions as well, is that they tend to be people who look into it. They've had either experience with it in their own families, or they know somebody who's had it, or they've looked into it, or they've, they've heard about hospital birthing, or especially during the pandemic, they, they didn't want to be alone in a hospital room having to wear a mask while they're laboring. Um, you know, the rules that hospitals came, really, it really did, it really did unveil the, um, the way hospitals really think about pregnancy during the pandemic. You know, their hospitals were scrambling over the last few years to get this label called mother baby friendly. You've probably heard of it. Oh, totally. You probably have it there. Yeah. And, and the all that got thrown out the window. <laughs> the minute yeah. the pandemic hit, the mother baby friendly thing went out the window. Oh, right. all these lactation consultants got laid off out of the hospitals here. And yeah, really amazing. Like something. Yeah. And, 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 and again, the woman's well being, the, the emotional support people, the doula, all that stuff, non essential, the father, non essential. Non essential. Yeah. Right. And that, and they show that they, they feel like having a baby is like having your gallbladder out. It's just right. a procedure. Why do you need to have a support person there? Right. That's the way they look at it. And it was very clear that they could have made special arrangements for women in labor. They, you know, they could have had, they could have taken a wing of the hospital and done it differently. If they're so fearful of the coronavirus, they could have done it differently. They chose not to. Right. And it's cruel. It's, it's, the way we treat the way we treat women giving birth was very similar to what, how we treat aged people living in, um, you know, in nursing homes and stuff like that. We right. we we isolated them. It was cruel. It was evil, and it was sort of cruel and evil what we did to pregnant ladies as well. But people dying alone, people not touching their family members for a year, uh, you know, that, that sort of that's crazy. If the if the and here's the crazy thing: if the if the ultrasound tech or the nurse or the person that works in the nursing home can come and go every day and go back to her family, can go shopping at Ralph's, can go at the, the grocery store, can do all these things and they can go in and out and they can go in and out of different rooms at the nursing home. Then why couldn't your, the spouse of the woman in the nursing home or the man in the nursing home or their children come and visit them? Makes Especially if it's their end of days. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's yeah. the same, same thing with pregnancy. The idea that women were afraid their babies would be separated from them, that they'd have nobody advocating for them. And, and it happened. You saw, you know, I, we've all heard stories about women who were bullied or, or, um, or coerced. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that I think brings us back, back again to that safety in the 42 week mark. And before we started talking, you know, again, your expertise is with twins and breaches. And so how does that affect like selection or education or that teamwork conversation when if say you have a client and maybe there it's an, a singleton or maybe it's a breech baby or maybe it's twins and they start getting to that 42 week mark. Um, how do you sort of support those conversations? Well, before I do that, I wanna finish because Danielle, I, I, the 42 week thing, I forgot one major component of it and that is fetal testing and the biophysical profile, right? 
Um, there's good science in my profession and there's bad science in my profession, just like in all professions and in all science, all right? The biophysical profile seems to be very well um, received. It's been tested many different ways. It seems to be fairly accurate. And a biophysical profile for those listening consists of basically five different points. Four of them are done by ultrasound, includes amniotic fluid volume, something called fetal breathing, looking at fetal movement, and then the tone of the baby, which is whether the baby's flexed, that sort of thing. And the fifth one is, a, uh, is the wearing the belts for the non-stress test. And if you have a score that is 10 out of 10, which is what you, you get two for each one, there's no one. So it's either two, four, six, eight, or 10, or zero, I guess. Um, but if you get a score of 10 out of 10, then the likelihood of having a stillbirth within the next three to four days is less than 1%. Right? It's close, it's, it's very, very small, all right? It's never zero, nothing is never zero, okay? But it's very small. So if that's true at 40 weeks, why isn't it true at 42 weeks? If the biophysical profile at 42 weeks or 41 weeks is normal, why do we tell people it's dangerous to go any further? Why? I'd like an answer to that. I'd like, I'd like someone in academia to not give you a double speak answer and say, well, it's risky because the, you know, the placenta could fail at any moment. Well, that's not what the biophysical profile says, okay? So if, it, if, it's, if the testing is normal at 42 weeks, then why can't you wait to 42 weeks and three days and retest them or 41 weeks or whatever? You wait three more days, you test them again. And this is one of those crazy things about my, my, my numbers thing. Remember I said if things happen an even number, isn't it interesting that, that the testing is good for like 72 hours, but, on, but every other time it's good for 96 because we, we, we don't do Saturdays or Sundays. So we can only do Monday, Thursdays or Tuesday, Fridays for your testing. So um, I'll just give you a, a sidelight. When I was uh, back with the 91, so what is that, uh, 29 years ago? Yeah, 29 years ago, I had testicular cancer and I got, I got radiation for testicular cancer and the radiation was for three weeks, Monday through Friday. And at the time, I just, you know, I wasn't, I don't think like I do now. And then I think about it, I go, well, what does cancer need two days off? You know, why was it only Monday through Friday? Right, okay. can't, can't cancer doesn't respond. It's not on 15 the days in a row because the, the radiation technicians don't work on Saturday and Sunday. Wow. So they come up with a chemotherapy, or uh, I mean, a radiation therapy regimen that meets their schedule. Right. Is um, that evidence-based? <laughs> What's that? Is that evidence-based? Is that actually what's best for the patient's health? Clearly not, but. And I wonder what the counseling was if you would have asked that question. I didn't know enough back then to ask that question. I know, but I oh, just wonder if somebody had asked that question, if they, oh, well, it's good for the body to have two days. Yeah, any body needs two, two days yeah. rest, right. Well, why, right, not right. <laughs> why not three, why not a week? Why not, you know, how did they come up with this regimen? And did, Numbers, what, did right. what did they compare it against to come up with this regimen? Did they compare it against 15 straight days? Did they compare it against five days on, one day off? Did it five days off, you know, whatever. So right. anyway, back to, back to the biophysical profile. So. Another thing is when people get to 41 weeks and they're being told they need to be induced because it's dangerous, if they have a biophysical profile that's 10 out of 10, ask your practitioner, well, why are you testing me at 41 weeks if you're telling me that it's dangerous? If the testing is, isn't going to tell you any information, then, then why are you doing it? And if it tells you that the information is perfect, then why are we talking about induction? And, you know, and you're, you're going to twist their head into a pretzel because they don't expect you to have these kind of 
questions. And then of course they don't have usually have the time in their prenatal visit to actually answer the question either. So it gets to be very uh, confounding for, for many people. Um, back to your point about, well, breaches are, I don't consider any different than singleton head down babies. I mean, they, they go and you know we start testing. In my practice, we generally don't start testing in, in people who don't have an underlying problem until about 41 and a half weeks. I mean, when biophysical profiles first came out, it was, it was started at 42 weeks. And then they moved it to 41 weeks, and then they moved it to 40 weeks in one day. And then some doctors start doing it at 38 weeks because you're over 35 or some other ridiculous number. And of course, the more you test somebody, the more you're gonna likely find something that doesn't mean anything, but it's gonna start planting fear and seeds of doubt in the mother. And eventually you're gonna end up having to induce her because you now made her everyone so worried and what's the chance of success in a mother who's really scared and worried? Not very good because mammals don't labor well when they're under stress or fear. So it's a it's a it's a it's a circular it's a it's a Mobius strip of of insanity, is what it is. So, um, but but with twins, you know, everyone tells you that twins need to be delivered at 37 weeks because the rate of loss goes up so astronomically after that that all twins should be delivered at 37 weeks. Which is why you said well isn't term twins 37 weeks? And the answer is no, it's not, all right? Gestation doesn't suddenly change because you have two of them, all right? Twins come earlier usually, and in my practice, because I don't induce, my twins come at an uh, average of 39 weeks in one day, and my actual singletons actually come at an average of 40 weeks, all right? Breaches were 39 weeks in six days and head down babies were 40 weeks in one day. And so it actually, that 40 week thing is, fairly accurate. But twins, I, if you leave them alone, they'll averagely go over to, they'll go to 39 weeks. But they don't leave them alone because there's data that shows that the relative risk of stillbirth rises. So again, what did I say about relative risk? It's meaningless unless you know what the denominator is, right? Exactly. Right. So the numbers that I use to counsel with are numbers that I've looked at and they only have data on twins that go to 40 weeks because there just isn't data that goes beyond 40 weeks with twins. Um, the risk of stillbirth with, twin, with women who have twins who aren't IUGR, aren't diabetic or aren't preeclamptic, okay, is about seven per 10,000 at 37, 36, 37 weeks. And at 40 weeks, it's about 46 per 10,000. So if you look at that, that's about a seven fold increase in risk between 36 and a half weeks and 40 weeks which sounds awful, okay? But if you tell someone the actual risk, the actual risk of having a stillbirth at 36 to 37 weeks is 99.93% not having it. And the risk of not having it at 40, at 40 weeks is 99.54%, okay? So it's less than one in 200. Now, some people will say at 40 weeks, one in 200 is too high a risk and I don't wanna take that. And I'm happy to be induced at 39 weeks or 38 weeks. And that's fine, but you're giving them honest information. You're not skewing your information to give them um, data to get them to do something that you want them to do because you want them out or, you, or because you're nervous and you're projecting your anxiety onto your patients. And therefore, um, you know, that's not correct. That's not what we should be doing. If we have anxiety, we should be screaming into a pillow at night in our house, but we shouldn't be dumping it on our, our clients. Um, so that's where, that's where that comes from with twins. So 
you know, I just recently had twins that went to 42 weeks and I myself was already, I was getting nervous because I never had twins that went that far before. But she was a holistic woman who trusted, uh, she was into astrology and all that stuff and she did not want any induction. So we were testing the babies twice a week and the, and the babies were fine at fighting, finally at 42 weeks, I think, or 42 weeks in one day, she went into labor and, and she had her babies. And what's really interesting about her babies, which I can, I can say, because I've had permission, is that one of them looked post-mature and the other one looked like it was about 38 weeks. It was really, you know, one of them had the peeling skin and the no vernix and the, you know, um, wrinkles on the feet all the way to the bottom. And the other one had wrinkles like three quarters or four fifths, no peeling skin and lots of vernix. Not weird. That's, it was just weird. Yeah, that's right. amazing. Like, how is that even possible for them to be different gestations if they're twins? Is it possible for them to be different gestations? What are your thoughts on that? Not that far apart. No, and no, she had, and she had. Yeah, because that's about a month. <laughs> well, like, yeah, three four weeks apart. And she and no, she had an early scan where you know she had a scan of like six or eight weeks, which showed her to have twins. So, you know, okay. that's not that's not possible. So I don't know. I have no idea. I don't know what causes vernix and what causes it to disappear. Right. I don't know. So um, that's it. That's a that's a study for you guys. That's something you to look up for next week. Okay. All right. <laughs> what is vernix, by the way? What where who sec where is it secrete from? Obviously from the skin, but how and you know what is it and why do we put it on our on our crow's feet when after the babies come? <laughs> <on? laughs> well, why would these two babies be affected differently if they're in the same womb? Right. But I, you know, quite frankly, I was nervous. Yeah. about it because I but I and I let them know that uh you know my comfort zone we're reaching my comfort zone and blah 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 and you know and as a home birth obstetrician I'm obviously under you know micro scrutiny periodically and so I have to be very careful about what I do but I again I believe in my model and I believe in giving people information and that's what they chose to do um so and it was great yeah, no, no. It, 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 yeah, it went fine. I mean, the, the, yeah. the labor was fine. It went, it went fast. I can't remember how many minutes apart they were, but but, but they were fine. Right. Beautiful. Right. right. No matter what you choose, there's a risk either way in life, but ultimately it's up for each individual to make that decision. And I'm grateful to hear of this story where this woman and family did that for themselves. Right. And, it all. And another thing we can talk about too is Sometimes on ultrasound, when you're doing the biophysical profile, you can see that the amniotic fluid has a lot of particulate matter in it. And that particulate matter could be vernix, but if it wasn't there three days before, and now it's there, you can presume that it's probably meconium. So whenever you say the word meconium to somebody who really doesn't understand it, the immediate fear is that that means the baby's in distress and that's a problem. And that's not true. Right. Passage of meconium does not mean your baby's in distress and it has nothing to do with meconium aspiration syndrome other than that there's meconium in meconium aspiration syndrome too it's kind of like all elephants are mammals but not all mammals are elephants it's like you know everybody with meconium aspiration syndrome has passed meconium but not everybody that passes meconium has meconium aspiration syndrome and and i had a wise instructor when i was a resident who happened to be an mdjd i still remember his name was jeff phelan and and he lovingly said to us in a lecture one time that all meconium means, and he said it more graphically than I'm going to say it to you, but he says, all it means is that the baby has a working butthole. 
all right? But you can imagine the terms that he used and, and that the baby's anus is working. And it doesn't mean that the baby's it's anus is Sorry, Jamie froze up. What's there? <laughs> yeah. Wait, you guys froze up. I lost you. You got all choppy, Jamie, but I think you said that the anus is patent. <laughs> is that what you said? Yeah, I kind of heard it all choppy, but that's what she said. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I said. Is, and that's one thing we look for for the newborn exam. <laughs> yeah, so, so it doesn't necessarily mean anything. And of course, the new, CP, uh, the new NRP rules are generally with meconium, we don't use that the Lee anymore. We don't start suctioning their nose or their trachea or you know down the back of their throat. We just leave them be if they look fine and we just leave them we leave them be so and that's your training too right guys you got the same yep right yeah so, the the midwife that i worked under said that when she started they used to suction oh, babies at the crazy. perineum and yeah. and or keep the baby from breathing clamp and cut and go to the warmer and then get them suction them and then get them to breathe oh, like backtracking the reflex response that's exactly, that's exactly what we did. We would, for vertex babies, we'd suction them on the perineum. We tell the woman to don't push now. Hold on, don't push, don't push. Yeah, right, don't push. Which is the most useful advice yeah. <laughs> when the baby's half out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the whole taking the baby to the warmer thing and the, you know, the hazmat outfit that you're wearing when you catch a baby and, and the washing off of a woman's bottom with betadine uh, prior to a vaginal delivery and all the things that are still done in many hospitals around the country are absolutely, uh, you know, they're indicative of the medical model of obstetrics and how they look at pregnancy. They look at, you can take someone's gallbladder out and you got to prep their abdomen you, before you make the incision. So why wouldn't you prep a woman's vagina? Because, you know, birth is supposed to be a sterile procedure, right? <laughs> Guys, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to say no, no. Oh, right. <laughs> Sorry, my response was laughter. Yeah, me <laughs> too. <laughs> I was like, yeah, right. Right. I mean, just, I mean, again, think about how other mammals give birth and then just try to remember that we're mammals. Right. And we're not that different from nature. We are nature. <laughs> yeah, I mean, women, women have all the tools to give birth safe, quiet, and unobserved by themselves. That's what they're designed to do. We don't do that because our brains like potentially to have support and emotional support, but ultimately you have all the tools in your body to go off and give birth, birth your placenta, do all the things you're supposed to do, you know, we're not advocating that, at least I'm not advocating that on, on your podcast, but I'm just saying that that's how nature has designed you guys to do it. And well, and even just women knowing that. <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of, well, we know that there's a lot of fear around it and what we spoke of earlier, all the poor outcomes and the statistics of maternal mortality and neonatal mortality are not that great in this country. So that could really just feed into the fear of like, well, look at all these bad outcomes. We have to be in the hospital because this whole birth thing is actually wickedly dangerous and so risky. Um, so, you know, we have to you know go what? be it micromanaged. Is, it, it can be, but that's why we get trained. That's why you guys go through all your training and we go through all our training. And then they train us and then they put us out there and then they don't trust us. All right. Well, it can be. And then there's that saying, right? It's like life or birth is as safe as life gets. Like life is inherently risky. Nothing is without risk. I mean, we go walk outside, you drive around, just being in the world, you're risking death, right? Being, 
by being alive, yeah. you're susceptible to dying. Um, yeah, we put injury. it out there. We put it out there that that modern medicine can make birth safe, which is a which which was, you know, probably a big mistake. It was probably done with the. I'm not even sure if it was done with the best intentions. I won't even say that, but it was, you know, it might have been done with good intentions because they might have thought at those days that it made sense to do all the interventions that they did, you know, the, um, you know, the Dr. Delee and vilifying midwives and and bringing, calling birth pathology and bringing it into the hospital, and then you know Dr. Friedman coming up with his Friedman curves and his labor curves, and in order to have a labor curve, you have to have points on it. In order to have points on it, you have to have vaginal exams and. You know, doing multiple vaginal exams in a woman in labor is uncomfortable and can lead to infection and we know all this and yet and and the idea that all women having their first baby should dilate at the same rate because if we, we of course we know that all women are exactly the same and that all labor should be exactly the same and and somebody didn't raise their hand back then and said excuse me dr freeman this is really stupid okay <laughs> maybe they <laughs> did and they got kicked out they probably got no they probably got uh Shadow banned and uh, uh, <laughs> canceled. And canceled and, yeah, and uh, blocked. Their Instagram got de yeah, got, got deactivated. Misinformation. Yeah, they deleted them. Right, and they got deleted. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> that's why we don't know about them. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, that's even now to even find any statistics on anyone going over 42 weeks is really difficult. You know, you have to dig deep to find any sort of current information about that simply because they don't allow it anymore. I, um, I was handed some old pregnancy wheels to calculator, pregnancy wheel calculators, and they go to 44 weeks. They're from the they're from the 80s or the 90s. It's kind of amazing that the wheels used, not that long ago, used to go to 44 weeks. <laughs> yeah, my wheel, my wheel only goes to 42 weeks. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 never, I never even bothered to notice that. It's a, it's a <laughs> yep, um, that's the cutoff. Even the wheel says. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, look at their problems can develop and people, people should... It just shows that the, at the beginning of your pregnancy, what you need to do is you need to find someone that you're comfortable with. You can't make that decision at 38 weeks that now your doctor is making you uncomfortable and sort of that sort of thing, because now you're, you're at a point where you're sort of screwed. So if you go into the doctor's office or your OBs or your midwife's office and they're, and they're warm and the, the staff is friendly and you feel comfortable there, even if they are more of a medical operation, some of that, there's some value to that, yeah. all right? To having, to feeling safe and secure and safety and security, as we talked about earlier, is gonna look different to everybody in the individual person. And it's not assuming that, that all these things are bad and that things can't go wrong at 41 weeks or even 39 and a half weeks, they can. But usually, there's signs of that. And that's why you go in for prenatal visits a little more frequently at the end. And that's why they give you things to talk about and watch for. We talk about fetal kick counting. We talk about swelling. We talk about headache. We talk about the things that you as a person at home can watch for to bring to you know, your practitioner's attention if things aren't going well. But when things otherwise are going well, it's very unlikely for something to go wrong. And we need to revamp how, how we talk to women and how we talk about pregnancy. We need to, you know, people that have less far less exposure to the media and stuff like that, have much less fear of pregnancy. I mean, you talk about the Am Amish women, or you talk about women from say a third world country, they may even know somebody who's passed away in pregnancy, who's died 
but they still have less fear of a pregnancy than, than the average woman on the west side of Los Angeles. Um, and I can't speak for your island, but, but, I, but I just think that, you know, it's, in, it's just embedded in our, in our culture. Fear sells, fear is what motivates people. I mean, some, a small amount of fear is actually what motivates you to get out of bed in the morning and go to work because fear of starvation or fear you're not gonna pay your rent. But too much fear is paralyzing. And it also sends out a cocktail of hormones from your brain, which then affects your baby's development. Your baby's inside your body, especially in the second, third trimester, its neuroimmune system is forming. And I just attended a conference uh, this past weekend um, in Ashland, Oregon, or actually Phoenix, Oregon, with, um, it was called the Healthy Immunity 2021 with uh, Jen Margulis and uh, Paul Thomas and Bob Sears and a bunch of other people, really good people. There were seven speakers, they were all excellent. And one of the things they talked about, one of the speakers talked about was the fact that when we, our patterns are set early in utero and, they, and they're multi-generational. And, they, and so you can pass down the things that you inherit from your, your parents into your, into your offspring, even though you may have different life because those things are being set, those neural immune pathways are being set. So if you have a mother who's undergoing a lot of stress, um, lived through the Holocaust, lived through a, a, a hurricane, lived through 9-11, lived through lockdowns and fears of coronavirus, all their babies, all right, are getting that input and that feedback during those last critical months of pregnancy. And we don't know what damage we're doing to those babies down the road. We don't know, right? We need to, we need to reinstill the confidence that, that this is a natural process. And it doesn't need to be babysit all the way through. And, and it doesn't need to be what if this goes wrong and what if that goes wrong. There's a midwife and I'm blanking on her name and I feel bad that I am that she said, what if it goes right? And, and, and it's a good way of thinking about things. What if things go right? Because most of the time they do. Yeah. But why are we always thinking worst case scenario? Let's not do that. Yeah. Let's not do that to the next generation of our, chil our children and our children's children and, yeah. and dump this anxiety and fear on them. We need to fix it now because mm -hmm. what we've done to our kids in the last year is, is going to take generations to fix if it's even fixable. Yeah. The locking down, the, the lack of facial recognition, the, the lack of body contact, the lack of play uh, with, with peers, the idea that you're sitting on a couch all day long playing uh, you know, uh, uh, one of those military games. I'm drawing a blank on them now. What are they, Call of Duty or whatever you're playing. Oh. You know, where you're blowing up people all the time or whatever. And, and um, you know, you're, you're watching, watching regular uh, mainstream news and it's all about fear. It's all about, uh, you know, scaring you and, and making you want to do this. That, why do you want to live that? Why do we want to live that way anymore? Thank goodness for podcasts. You, yeah. can, you can listen to news somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, podcasts and certain, and certain people that you trust that are getting out there and putting out information. Doesn't even have to be a podcast. Sometimes it's no. just a, a certain writer that writes stuff that you can trust, or or some right. some video on any media. I mean, YouTube is censoring videos that you that you and I might want to see, so you have to find other sources um, um, of those videos. Right. Um, but we we need to feel more confident in our lives. We need to be understanding that that pregnancy itself is a normal function, and whether it goes to thirty eight weeks or forty weeks or forty two weeks. Most of the time, it's perfectly fine. And if you're over 35, you're not, that's not a medical problem. 
All right. You know, uh, on your on your uh, prenatal forms, at least the medical ones, they have what's called a problem list. Okay. And I cross off the word problem and I write diagnosis list because if somebody is mildly hypothyroid on, on low dose levothyroxine, that will be in the problem list, but that's not a problem. If somebody's over 35, I don't even bother writing down advanced maternal age anymore. That's a stupid diagnosis. All right. It may have some bearing on genetics. And so maybe you can do some genetic testing early on if they want that. And then once that's over, then the rest of it is just prenatal care. And if they have a slightly higher risk of developing hypertension, fine. If they develop hypertension, you'll deal with it. But to plant seeds of doubt in them at, at eight weeks, telling them that, well, you're 35, so we're going to need to start testing your baby at 36 weeks because your placenta could give out, which I hear all the time. That, that's, that's just unethical. It's worse than unethical. It's just, it's, it's not evil. It's, it's malicious, though. It's malicious to, to make people worry. This is one of the best things that could ever happen to a woman and we try to take, we try to suck the joy. Yeah, steal the joy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why this is certainly bigger than birth. And that's why there's that saying out there of how you do anything is how you do everything because this is all of a state <laughs> of mind. It's your perspective. It's how you approach things. Um, I think you've said this, Dr. Sue, before. I think I got it from you. Where it's like, do you use a plane crash as a reason not to get on a plane? Like, most people don't. There's totally people out there that don't get on planes because they're too afraid. Totally a thing. Mm -hmm. But most people will just get on the plane knowing like, yeah, it might crash, but it probably won't. And it's totally worth the risk to just go for it because I really want to go on this plane ride or to my next destination. Um, so it's how you approach things, right? Um, it's yeah. what do yeah, you every, focus on? Everything that you do has risk-benefit ratio. I talked about getting out of bed in the morning. It's safer to stay in yeah. bed. Don't get out of bed. You'll never get run over by a truck if you're, uh, you know, if you're on. Well, if you're on the first floor of an apartment, you might a truck might drive into your apartment and smash your bedroom. <laughs> so, you know, if you live on the third floor, though, you probably will never get hit by a truck. Okay. Mm -hmm. So get a third-floor apartment and never get out of your bed, and you'll probably be safe. Right, you right. have reduced but your you risk. You can't eat because you might zero. choke. <laughs> yeah, that, Jamie? You cut out. But you can't eat because you might choke. <laughs> yeah, well, that was one of the Yeah, I mean, it, that was one of the things I used to use in an example. I said, you know, do we do we go to the ER every time we have a meal because we might choke? We should be eating our dinners in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. Right, and that's how people look at, at pregnancy: is every time we we should do this in a hospital because something might go wrong. Right. right. And then, of course, when you're in the hospital, there's far greater chances of things going wrong simply by the model by which you're treated there, where you're immobilized and you're given documents to sign that talk about death, death and surgery. And, and then you ask to pee in a cup and put in a hospital gown and you have to have the belt strapped on you and you can't eat. And if you're lucky, you'll give you a popsicle. Oh. And, um, and it's from a stranger. Yeah. And you got, you know, then your mother, and in the old days, your mother and your husband and your sister were Betty were sitting in chairs staring at you while you tried to labor, while everyone's looking at the fetal monitor and listening to the bump, 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 bump of the heart rate. And, you know, that is not how, right. that's not you know, one of, my, one of my memes, you guys just saw it recently that my, my social media person put it back out there again is that, you know, what we do to the human female, you would never do to your dog. And, um, in labor right. and that's absolutely true if your dog was in labor you'd honor the space and leave her alone mm -hmm. right 
you know, I just realized, you know, when people do choke and maybe even die when they're eating at home or at a restaurant, no one says, gosh, they should have been eating at the ER. They're like, no, it's like, gosh, it just happens. It's a thing, right? You just recognize it's a part of life. And yeah, we know to leave puppies and kittens alone in the closet that they tend to go hide in to give birth, leave them alone. And even after they're born, you leave them alone. nobody ever separates the baby from the mother that's just Mm -hmm. no and listen i know that we're you know we are not animals in the sense of that we have higher brain function that sort of thing but but biologically we are you know our our reproductive stuff is is mammalian and it works just like that And and i granted that that people don't want bad outcomes but the but and if the hospital model had really good numbers then you could argue that yeah going to the hospital is the safest place to give birth mm-hmm. but they but they don't have really good numbers yeah. do we really believe that one third of all women have to have a c-section in order to have a baby and that that we should accept that and if you live in brazil or south africa it's 80 percent. 80 percent of women have a c-section in brazil or in south africa yeah 80 percent of women's pelvises aren't working or their babies can't find the way i just yeah don't. thank god for modern medicine or what would we do yeah well, that's that whole worry, though, about breeding in captivity, even, right? I mean, we are be- we are now breeding in captivity. <laughs> right, and even though the cognitive mind might feel very reassured knowing that there's a surgeon within minutes and right, the OR room, and you can have all these drugs and all these life-saving equipments, and that might make your thinking brain feel very safe, which is very important. But ultimately, it's not through the thinking brain that women give birth. It's beyond that. So the biological piece that you're pointing out here, Sue, that's the part that might not feel so safe with all these machines and and cables being tied up to you and all these people coming in and out of your room and staring at you and maybe pulling the dead baby card or just those pressures aren't conducive to the biological process. And, and those are a lot of pieces to try to... F- you know, juggle for people. That's right, Daniela. That's very well said. I mean, it, it, uh, um, labor is a primitive brain function. And when your higher brain kicks in, it screws it up. And the analogy that I often use when I'm teaching about that is, is if you think about breathing or digestion, um, it's, it's a normal function of your body. You don't have to think about it. It's a primitive brain function. It happens without you thinking about it. But what happens when you start thinking about it? You mm-hmm. screw it up, okay? If you have to give a speech, you might get diarrhea or you might hyperventilate. Um, you know, if you have a test that's coming up, you, you know, those sorts of things happen because your cognitive brain is now overriding your primitive brain function and screwing it up. And the same thing happens in labor, which is why Sarah Buckley likes to say, um, and I quote her, you know, this quote is, you know, uh, birth should be safe, quiet, and unobserved. And it really should be, um, because that's how mammals best give birth because you need to stay in your primitive brain. And in the hospital setting, when you have a machine that's making beeps all the time, or when you have a loudspeaker in a hallway where you can hear something going on in the hospital or people talking in the hallway or, or, or people coming in your room periodically or the blood pressure cuff pumping up on your arm in, intermittently. Um, all that stuff's happening. It just, it, it takes you out of your primitive brain. And when you can't move, all right, then you can't deal with your body as nature intended, which is to help your baby down by changing position and shifting your weight and, and, and doing all the things that you do when you're stuck laying on your side or your back because you have to be monitored then of course you're gonna act for the epidural and the epidural is gonna actually interfere with all the interactions between mother and baby. Um, 
Um, and so, you know, people think that epidurals are innocuous and I, I would refer people to go to my blog if they go to my website and, and put in the word toothache into the um, blog search engine and it'll come up with a blog I wrote several years ago called Labor is Not a Toothache. And it talks about the downsides of epidurals, which no one ever mentions when they talk about epidurals. In the hospital, they're sold like candy. Why would you want to have labor? Why would you want to have pain in labor? You can just, you can just uh, have an epidural and it'll be easy for you. But then you have to ask the question, if nature is not stupid and we don't think it is, then you have to ask your question, why is labor painful? Why is it painful? What's the point of it being painful? You'd think if it wasn't valuable that over the eons, it would have evolved away because it doesn't serve a mammal any good to be moaning while it's out in the wild giving birth because it could attract a predator and yet labor for all mammals is painful. So maybe there's a reason for it. And in brief, the reason is my feeling is, and again, you can't prove it, it's a theory, but is the reason is that mother and baby are communicating through their hormonal output. And when mother has a surge and her, she's uncomfortable, she puts out neurotransmitters that cross the placenta and they help soothe the baby and calm the baby and tell the baby that everything's okay because mom's here. And then mom gets an epidural and she's now snoring, but now that she's contracting and the, and the contractions are spaced out. So they've added Pitocin now. And now the baby's getting these strong contractions and there's no mom anymore. And the baby ends to eventually decompensates and ends up with an emergency C-section. And isn't that great because we just saved your baby. And it's like, uh, no, that actually isn't so great. Right. So there are, there are reasons that, you know, people should go into these things with eyes wide open. They shouldn't be going in being told that, that an epidural has no downside. You know, they'll be told, oh, there's a small chance you could get a, like a headache or you could get a, you know, a, a, a hematoma in your back, but that's all they tell them. They don't tell them that the effects on your blood pressure and how many times have you had somebody that you transferred to the hospital who's got an epidural and 20 minutes later, the baby has a D cell because the baby mom's um, not peripheral, it's internal blood pressure has dropped a little bit. His blood pressure got maybe normal, but the blood pressure dropped, the baby didn't like it, comes back up again and everything's fine. We see it all the time, all right? We know that it's affecting the baby and we know that it affects the mom's circulation, um, but we just completely deny it. We just say that, it, that oh, that's, that's not related to the epidural. It's kind of like somebody, the time somebody the getting a vaccine and then, and then having a seizure like, 12 minutes later and saying, well, that's just a random event. It had nothing to do with the vaccine. Oh, goodness. Yeah, right. right. They say epidurals won't affect babies. I've heard that. And right then the heart rate so comes insane. down. And oh, no, that just happened because birth is just dangerous. And that's just what oh, happens. And that's why you got to be in the hospital so we can save you. Yeah. We could have a whole podcast episode on saving culture or that whole concept of being saved. And the heroes. Ah, well, you're well, a hero in your own right, just speaking again, <laughs> speaking the truth. You're not necessarily trying to save, you're trying to give informed consent and letting women save themselves. <laughs> or not, or not, but, but having it be, having empowered them to make their own decisions. And you can't make your own informed decisions if you don't have information. It just don't have you can't do it. And so, you know, the way my profession works is, well, it doesn't work, but the way it, it's set up is the system. It's not the people, all right? I wanna make right. it very clear that the people that go into this profession don't do it to do harm. They do it because they really wanna do good, but the system itself beats them down. It doesn't allow them, you know, here's, a, here's something that I say all the time. It has nothing to do with the 42 week thing, but 
you know, the C-section rate in the United States is a little over 30%, but let's use 30 because it's an easy number. It's 30%. And the World Health Organization, who I'm not a big fan of, obviously, um, says that the C-section rate should be somewhere between 10 and 15% in, in, in Western countries. So let's just say 15% because that's easy math. So then if the C-section rate is 30%, but it should be 15%, and we're doing about 1.4 million C-sections every year in the United States, which is about 30% of 4 million or 1.3 million, let's just say 1.3 million, um, uh, because there's 4 million births approximately every year in the United States. So 1.3 million is one third of that or th approximately. So if you're saying half of those are unnecessary, that means there's 650,000 un un unnecessary C-sections being done every year in the United States. Can you imagine if there were 650,000 unnecessary breast surgeries or knee surgeries or any other surgery being done in the United States? Right now, it's the most common surgery being done. Half of them being done are not necessary. But here's the, the kicker is that nobody goes home at night and looks at their spouse or their loved ones and says, honey, guess what? I did two unnecessary C-sections today. So every doctor's C-section they do is necessary, yet half are unnecessary. So there's a cognitive dissonance there that, that exists in the medical model, which is saying that we're doing great work, but half of what we're doing is unnecessary, according to the organization that we're supposed to all kowtow to, which is the World Health Organization. And I think, you know, technically they're, they're on this number, they're probably more accurate. And even if it's 20%, that means that one third of all C-sections being done are unnecessary. So it's still a crazy number of unnecessary surgeries. And every one of these surgeries not only has consequences to the woman immediately at that time, but the long-term consequences. And to her and the baby. can cause, not just in future pregnancies, but with scar tissue and bowel obstruction and bladder injury and, and blood loss and, and you know, placenta accreta next time and others. Kind of, it can cause all kinds of problems. It's not a benign procedure, even though it's easily done. It takes 30 minutes to do it. You know, doctors who are do it are really good at it. I mean, you get, you know, you do something repetitiously, you, you get really good at it. So I would say that my colleagues are really good at C-sections. They're far better than I. I haven't done a C-section in 11 years. So, um, um, you know, part of me wishes that if the system were different. I could have continuity with my clients and I could take them to the hospital and I could stick with them. And if they needed a C-section, I could partake in that. But I could never go back and work in that world anymore anyway, nor would they want to have me either. So, um, it's, it's mutual. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot so of stuff there that we talked about. Know. Yeah. Right. Lots of golden nuggets. Is I would tell there... people, to look it up. The information is available. It's, it's, you, you, you know, maybe don't use Google because I, <laughs> I, I hate yeah. Google right now, you know, use uh, brave or use DuckDuckGo or even Bing and you, and search out these things, find out the numbers. I, while we were talking in the prep, you were talking about the stillbirth rate at 42 weeks. So I just Google, I just, I didn't Google it. I searched on DuckDuckGo <laughs> and I found it and I pulled it up and I saw the numbers. And so I was, if you, if I needed to quote them, I would have been able to quote them uh, better. It's that easy. Right. It's that easy right. to look stuff up. It's, 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 it's easier to tell people the same thing you've told them all along and, and never answer a question if somebody asks an intriguing or a, a an inquiring question, but, yeah. but um, it's nice to be able to give people an answer or tell people here, here's where you go look at it. Go yeah. look at the data yourself. And well, you know, right. moms, pregnant people, like they're, they're busy, you know, you're not tr necessarily trying to become or 
you know, have to create a thesis or major study research project while you're pregnant about all your pregnancy options. And that can be frustrating sometimes, like that's what it has to take instead of just being like, oh, no, I just hired this person that I I trust enough to just tell me on the information and I'm going to take their word uh, face value for everything, Um, you know. I don't think that would be great, but in theory, wouldn't it be great if it were just that easy? But it's not. You really do have to go do your re- own research. If, um, at least, that's what it, it would take to really reclaim your own perspective and figure out where you stand with it all. Um, so yeah, it does take a lot of effort, and sometimes it's frustrating. But it is. You got to dive into it for yourself. So, Dr. Sue, is there any last golden nuggets you want to leave people with? Yeah, I always like to leave people with this nugget. It's like, you know, home birth is not for everybody, but informed decision-making is, is one of my favorite quotes. And, and what I would say to people is, if you can, if you have no major medical problems, you would be much more better, much more better. That's really good. <laughs> you, and my mother was an English teacher too. So she would like, she's rolling over. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you'd be much better off by um, using a midwife for your pregnancy. Now, the problem, of course, is that finding a midwife that works in a hospital that has autonomy and decision-making is also very rare because a lot of hospitals don't have midwives and the ones that do, the midwives are often under certain restrictions um, following hospital policy. But even if you're gonna get obstetrical care with a OB and plan to deliver in a hospital, having concomitant care or what we call concurrent care with a a community-based midwife to give you good prenatal care, prenatal advice, help to keep you healthy, help to keep you deal with your stress levels, uh, deal with your nutrition, deal with your, um, you know, your exercise, all the things that OBs may talk about in their eight, you know, their 10 minute office visit, or they may give you handouts on because they don't really have time to talk about it with you, or they may ignore it altogether. But having a midwife as part of your care and even having her use, use her, if you can afford it as a monotrice, I think your, your listeners know what a monotrice is. Yes, I believe so. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. Yeah, it's a midwife that comes to your house and keeps you at home for as long as possible. And then take, and then you go to the hospital when you're like eight centimeters or nine, you know, when you're ready to push as opposed to getting there too early where there's more chances that they can meddle with you and you can get interventions placed upon you. Um, doing it that way and you're more likely to guarantee yourself a good experience. I mean, the hospital is is not a great place to labor, but if you have to give birth there, you you know, that's fine. Get out of it. Get out of there as soon as you can. You know, if you can, if you can go home six hours later, go home. But but try to get a midwife involved in your prenatal care because you'll be better off for it. That's what I would say to people. Um, the British have a better system than we do. They they incorporate midwives into their national health service, and so women have a choice of a home birth or a hospital birth, and they have a choice of a midwife. They really don't even have a choice of a physician unless they have a problem. Uh, physicians in the UK deal mainly with the problems, which is sort of the way it should be. Um, Mm -hmm. And the more women demand that, the more we'll see change in this country. But until they demand that, the the OBs are not going to give up their control over the profession. Um, And they're not doing us a service by not teaching the next generation of the OBs or midwives how to, how to handle, you know, situations like a surprise breach or or twins or scaring people out of going beyond 41 weeks or whatever it is you want to talk about. Uh, so that's what I said. So midwifery care is is key, I think. And I wouldn't have said that, by the way, um, you know, 
what was it 35 years ago when I came out of residency. I would not have said that. I, I, you know, I evolved into this place. I came out of residency thinking like most obese do that home birth was idiotic, you know, um, but I've evolved because I saw a difference and I was able to um, keep an open mind and learn. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. That's what I would tell people. Great. I love it. Thank you so much. You guys on the island are really laid back. Oh, yeah. You know? <laughs> we're on like the fast paced island. We're where the capital is, right? We're like the more high speed version of the yeah, island. I also think it's so, yeah. I mean, we also, though, unless you're going through Kaiser or you have TRICARE, there's actually only one nurse midwife who does deliveries at our hospital. Kaiser has midwives, the Army Medical Center has midwives. But all the other hospitals, there's only one nurse midwife who does deliveries. Kind of remarkable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you used to, I mean, look at a, a hundred years ago, all babies were born, delivered by midwives. So mm -hmm. yeah, we've seen, the, you know, we've seen a fairly rapid change in what happened. And, I, I, you know, and then again, of course, it's probably very difficult for any midwife to, to make a living or, or to get privileges or to do the things on your island. I, I, again, I, that's a, that you guys probably talk about that on many of your podcasts, about what's going on there. I don't really know enough to get, get into that, but I'm just saying that people who listen to you that are, maybe aren't stuck on your island, um, they should they should look into it. Mm -hmm. And if you start demanding it, then they'll, if there's more demand, there'll be more supply. I, I'm a true supply side person who believes in that sort of system that supply and demand. If there's a, if there's a demand for something, there'll be somebody that wants to supply it. So get out there and demand it, demand it from your uh, hospital administrators. Women have power in numbers. You need to organize and, and go and, and don't, don't pick it or anything, but go try to set up a meeting with your local hospital administrator and say, we want midwives. Mm -hmm. See what happens, right? Maybe nothing will happen. It's probably true, but if you get enough of a loud voice, or you get somebody who's got enough influence, then, then it will happen. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Thanks, guys. Right. On. Yeah, thank Thanks you. For Thanks for your time and your energy and your input. Right. And you shared at the beginning your email and your. Well, not my email. My website is oh. birthinginstincts.com. There you go. And my Instagram is at birthinginstincts. And my podcast is on your podcast app now yeah. with Bliss Young, and it's um, Birthing Instincts Podcast. Two words. Everything else is one word when you uh, obviously on Instagram or whatever. It's all fantastic. Right. And I, and I hope that people will, uh, you, you can, by the way, you there's ways to contact me through both uh, Instagram Messenger and through my website. People have questions or want to want to ask questions. I tend to respond to as many as those I can get. I used to say I responded to everything. Now I can't. I can't because you know what? I'm getting messages on Facebook and messages on Instagram and messages on Messenger and messages on my email. <laughs> and then I have three different email addresses. So uh, wow. it's, it's really impossible for me to keep mm -hmm. track of everything. And then Bliss and I try to talk about stuff that matters. So I think people who enjoy your podcast would probably get a kick out of ours. Um, yeah. The Birthing Instincts podcast. We talk about subjects of the day. Um, we talk about our births. We talk, we usually have a topic now. We have a new format. So we're gonna pick a topic. Um, and then we're going to spend time on a topic. And then Bliss is going to have her midwife wisdom segment, and I'm going to have my dumb doctor dogma segment, <laughs> which is which is not necessarily about dumb doctors. It could be about dumb dogma, but it's 
it, it just was a nice alliteration. So I, I'm calling it the dumb doctor dogma segment. And uh, so we try to be entertaining as well as informative and just like you guys. So. Yeah, no, I think our listeners were certainly resonate with you guys as well. So go check it out. It's definitely worthwhile. You'll learn lots and likely laugh lots too. So thank you, Dr. Sue, for your time. So much fun hanging out, all of us together again. Oh, and the kitty cat. I know we're not not visual, so people can't see my kitty cat. This is Homer. Homer's so cute. Black and white kitty. He wants his dinner, so he's he's bugging me. He's been staring at me for about the last 20 minutes. He just my feet and looks at me and he, he can win any, any steering contest ever wow sounds great thank you again yeah.